I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, you have me, you have Dave, and you have Leo. Maybe, if he ever says hello. Yo! There we go. And you have Huggy. Hello! What's up? All right. This week's guest is somewhat of a celebrity, if you want to say that. Uh, he's called the Traveling R.O. So let's bring in Yi Men Lin. How you doing, Yi Men? Uh, good, Dave. How are you guys doing tonight? Very good. Don't mind Yi. He's a little browner than normal. He's got a lot of sun today doing his dad stuff. So, Yi Men, why don't you take a second and introduce yourself? Uh, well, gentlemen, thanks again for having me on today and uh, taking some time out of your uh, weekend Saturday to listen to me talk about myself for a little bit. Uh, for those of you that are just coming onto the podcast, uh, I was part. Uh, my name is Yi Min. Uh, I am currently living out in the San Francisco Bay Area, in California, uh, where I've been involved in USPSA you know since about 2014. So prior to USPSA, uh, I grew up in Western Kentucky. I ended up going out to college in the East Coast. And uh, then it seemed like a really good idea for me to join the Marine Corps after college. Uh, that was shortly before 9-11. So things obviously went a little bit uh, different than expected. So I did a couple deployments to Iraq with 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines as a logistics officer. Uh, after my time in the Marine Corps, then I decided uh, to move to Sustain, California. So I moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I was spending a little bit of time doing you know, tactical training. I uh, spent quite a bit of time with, you know, some folks uh, back in the day, like Frank Proctor and uh, a couple other folks. And then I found out about USPSA uh, through the pistol shooting forum. So there was a guy by the name of Gabe White and his range diary sort of got me interested in USPSA. So I, I found a range that was uh, hosting matches. And then at that point, I, I got started and realized, wow, I'm really not very good at pistol. So I decided to kind of get really involved in that, uh, got my RO certification within a year. And then at the time, uh, realized that the best way to go about shooting major matches on a budget was to work the matches. So I, I've been working uh, major matches, local matches, pretty much any match I could find across the United States since about 2015. Uh, and that kind of takes us to where we are now, where uh, allegedly I hear there's some sort of uh, presidential election going on for the heart and soul of USPSA. I think it's fake news. It probably is. <laughs> it's Fauci science. All right. So, Yemen, what we normally do is we ask a few personal questions to get to know you, kind of break the ice type of a thing, and then we move into the actual interrogation portion Works of the right. podcast. Okay. All right, Leo, you are up. All right, so first question, most important question, sets the tone for the rest of the podcast question. There are wrong answers to this question. 
No pressure. <laughs> what is your favorite movie? Uh, it's probably a toss-up between Heat and Saving Private Ryan. Hmm. Okay. Respectable. I'm. I'm. I'm in. Yeah. Please, please uh, elaborate. Well, like it or not, you know, Heat was probably one of the first movies that I saw that actually did a really excellent job with uh, talking about actual firearms handling. So the Marine Corps has used that in officer training and uh, basic training for years, talking about this is a really good example of fire movement. Uh, and for something that was done in L.A., you know, that that scene is something that you could watch and you, you could always learn something new in terms of shooting, moving, uh, engaging essentially what is a pincer ambush uh, you know that whole that whole scene pretty much makes the movie and what i particularly like about heat uh, is the complexity of the characters so uh al pacino's character was not necessarily this golden child right you know he had issues with his family his daughters and a divorce and and the, the girlfriend they had at the time and the other character you know he wasn't necessarily a straight-up bad guy you know he had a human element to him so that was a really interesting mix of you know very effective uh firearms handling and tactics as well as providing a very complicated picture of you know just because you're the good guy or the alleged bad guy there's more to it than just uh, whatever these stereotypes are uh saving private ryan same thing i think that was really the first time that you really you got an opportunity to see a war movie in barely unvarnished view so all the realism of you know you're, you're getting ready to land on the beach and everybody's thinking oh yeah we're getting ready to storm the beaches like john wayne and you know it's not really like that everybody's trying their hardest not to throw up over each other uh i think i was fortunate enough that i spent all my time in the desert so my experience of amphibious operations was getting in a plane landing in iraq thinking it looked just like 29 palms but it, it, it provided a certain amount of reality, and they did a really great job with uh, the character development. So you know, nobody expected Tom Hanks's character to be a, a history school teacher, and even uh, the corporal translator. You know, not everybody is a hero, right? You know, that guy totally froze up. But it made you want to hate him so bad. You're like, dude, all you have to do is just get up the stairs and, and save your buddy. Uh, but the reality is, is, you know, nobody really knows how they're going to react when people actually start shooting back. So, uh, you know, I have the, the, the most interesting story I have about that is people will ask, you know, have you ever been shot at? And I was uh, I was attached to a, a command unit as the logistics liaison. And I remember we were at the Baghdad International Airport. And so the security guys go out. I'm sitting here and I've got this radio like plugged to my head because we ran out of hell. We ran out of uh, radio helmets. So I'm sitting here next to, you know, a giant turbo diesel engine, and I'm sitting here trying to pay attention to what's going on the radio. And then all of a sudden the corpsman goes, sir, they're shooting at us. And I look up and I just see tracers flying out uh, across the door. And I say, well, close the door. Can't see it. We're going to be okay. And he goes, oh, that's a great idea. He closes the door and we're like, see, we're good. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those things that you, you it, it's, it's a really, and nobody would ever think like, well, if I don't see the tracers, it'll be fine. But yeah, you're good. But to a certain extent, you're like, well, your job is to stay here in case anybody gets hit. I'm here trying to figure out if we need to put up, you know, bullets and band-aids. Um, if something actually hits us, we probably won't know. It'll just be like, oh, well, uh, I'm not sitting at this Amtrak anymore. So, but, you know, nobody, it, it was a very human take on how people react in combat, which I thought was really, really, really special.
and, and it wasn't just at the beginning. It, it went throughout the whole movie, how they were reacting, like the guy who was supposed to reload the ammo going up the stairs, you know, the fear that he had. So, yeah, it went all the way throughout the movie. So we can continue because you passed the first, you know, barrier oh, to entry. So thank, we're good. Thank God. So, thank God. Yeah, I just want to let you know. <laughs> pressure's gone down a little bit. So I, we're, we're good. We're good. Sounds good. All right, Huggy. So <laughs> all right. Well, my question for you uh, is what is your favorite book? Uh, favorite book is probably, it still remains, uh, Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Uh, this was, again, it was a book I had read before I joined the Marine Corps, but it, it does, a, it, the book itself is, again, is a, it, you read it and it's initially a science fiction movie, right? So everybody goes, wow, I wish I could have powered armor. I've got like portable nukes, all sorts of things. But the story in and of itself is, is actually a very interesting look into civic responsibility right it, it very much talks about you know who has the right to vote and you can agree or disagree on whether you sort of need to earn this so if you kind of tie that to uh back to saving private ryan right so this guy is the youngest of five and they send somebody some guys out there just to rescue him and at the very end uh tom hanks's character uh, looks at matt david he goes you know earn this Right. And that's something that very weighs very heavily on Matt Damon's character for the remainder of his life, where he goes, you know, uh, you know, he asked his wife, am I a good person? Did I live a good life? And so there, you know, what what you define as universal service and, and earning the right to participate in society. It, it was a very interesting exploration into, you know, is. Is society is democracy is civic participation worth that much more when you have actually sacrificed for it as opposed to it's just given to you now philosophically you can kind of talk about if that's a good thing or not but it was a really interesting take on what what it means to be a contributing member to society from a civic perspective i want you to know that was that was deep on starch on that i mean that was deep i love it i love it I mean, at the end of the day, though, I really just want a USPSA division that allows me to shoot tactical nukes and flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> and bugs. Yeah. And bugs. The only good bug is a dead bug. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's what I say about snakes. I will say that that is, that is one downside to the movie. I don't think it comes across as much as it does in the book about that. They talk about it. Uh, in the beginning when he's in the classroom and, you know, before Ratchak becomes, you know, Ratchak's Roughnecks or whatever. But, right. like, I do wish they had stressed that a little bit more in the movie because that was something I thought was a lot more, it was explored a lot better in the book. But, yeah, that, that was well, one of my I, favorite parts of the whole thing. That's always kind of the challenge when you're adapting a book to a movie is, you know, you're trying to take something that you can uh, talk about in depth through the use of the English language, and now you're trying to translate into a more of a, a visual perspective. And so sometimes that's a little bit of a, a challenge. I mean, I, I, I totally understand their interpretation, you know, kind of taking the idea of civic involvement and, and maybe painting it in a little bit of a darker light, you know, with sort of the totalitarian aspect of, of you know, mandatory civic service. Um, you know, it, it, it's in the interpretation. I mean, for me, I was just more disappointed in the Okay, these guys were supposed to have power armor, and instead they look like a bunch of grunts, 
you know, running across the field, I'm going, wait, they're not doing anything except getting eaten by bugs. No, 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 this is not mobile infantry. Mobile infantry is power armor, rockets, nukes. Yeah, if, if you've ever seen any of the follow-up movies to it, they're, they're not as good, but they do have the power armor. <laughs> well, small favors. Yeah, Wait, you know. are, are these all? Are these all? Uh, these are all direct to video, right? Yeah, yeah, ooh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Sharknado. Actually, you know, I'm surprised because now so just, Paramount. I, just like, I don't want you to be disappointed. No, oh, well, I'll, uh, maybe that'll be when I'm having trouble falling asleep. Yeah, Paramount oh, yeah, just came out with their near new one, uh, Halo. So. I don't know if you looked at that one or if you remember the game Halo with the Master Chief in it. I do. I mean, my, my son actually brought that up on Halo. And, of course, you know, the the challenge is, you know, we don't have cable anymore. But now the downside is how many different streaming services do you need to be able to catch the one show that you're particularly interested in? Um, so the, the I saw there, there's been a couple of Halo movies that were on Netflix. One was kind of a kind of an extended series talking about Halo Reach. Uh, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of that that I actually really liked. So, you know, uh, in that particular series, uh, Master Chief plays just a very small role. Uh, they yep. actually spend a little bit more time with uh, the ship commander, if I remember correctly. So yep. I, I kind of like I kind of liked that sort of look into the character development of, uh, you know, not everybody starts off as this really strong guy. I mean, you know, to, to say like, hey, I'm not really quite sure about myself. And then the aliens show up and you're like, oh, well, I guess I have to be a leader now. Um, I was most disappointed that he didn't get the girl. Uh, that was that was a little sad. I was like, "Oh, you finally got the girl." No, she's dead. All right. Well, I guess I guess uh, we'll go we'll go fight some aliens and some uh, crazy bugs. Bugs. And, and yeah. that appears to be a common thread. Right? Yes, bugs. Yes. Yeah. But the one on Paramount, I will have to say, uh, I like the way they're actually. Uh, doing this one um it seems like they're actually starting it from the beginning of how the master chief and his crew came about right. you know and going forward from there so there's only three episodes so far so i have to give it a thumbs up so far it's a, a live action series yes yes it is okay that should actually be pretty interesting because i think they did a couple of uh animated shorts on youtube sort of talking about Master Chief and the, the group of guys that he ran well with. And so it's it's an interesting look into, okay, well, they're obviously Spartans other than Master Chief. You know, what are those Spartans like? Um, and, uh, yeah, just to go back to Halo Reach, that was also an interesting thing. So the guy gets rescued, and all the Spartans take off their helmets, and they're literally, you know, these, these, uh, these uh, cadets are looking at the Spartans going, you guys are our age, but you're big. No, I, I suppose that must must be what it's like, you know, when we shoot USPSA, you're like, oh, I'm really good. And then you, you know, you hear some, you know, Christian Siler going off and just blasting things and like getting awesome for it. And you look at him, you go, you're, uh, all right, I, I'm going home. Yeah. Yep. I yeah, quit. Sure. I'm out. Demoralizing. Yeah. So now a second question for you is, what is who is your favorite superhero or what it could be what or who it's your favorite superhero favorite superhero batman batman is probably my favorite superhero uh because he is because he's a he's a superhero in theory but he's the one that 
literally has no powers, right? All, all his, his skills and his powers are basically derived from his, uh, from his own genius and his ability to create uh, tools to best meet the situation. Uh, Batman is probably the most complicated character in some ways, um, in terms of, you know, there is a clear, hey, my parents were killed when I was younger, and I went on a soul-searching mission and, and was inspired to fight crime. Uh, oh, and oh, by the way, I happen to be a billionaire, but he's someone who is is very, you know, the, the different interpretations of Batman. You know, he's very complicated. He he demands justice, but he also demands very high standards for for himself in terms of his obligations to society as Bruce Wayne, as well as you know his obligations to the city as Batman. Um, so, yeah. Yimin, who's your who's your favorite Batman, actor-wise? Good question. Tough one. <laughs> I'm not think, I'm not a huge Batman fan, but I've got my own favorite. Uh, I, I I like Christian Bale's interpretation as probably the most realistic of the That's Batman what I like too. and his character. Uh, but I also appreciate Michael Keaton because he was the first, and he. You know, it was it was you're, you're talking about a Batman a series that sort of started in the late 80s and the early 90s. So you had obviously a very different uh, acting, uh, uh, an acting presentation where there's a little bit of the dark side, but not overwhelming the dark side, because I think that's what people were looking for in the movies back then. So you could tell that he was very conflicted as Batman, but he wasn't necessarily as dark and conflicted as, say, Christian Bale's Batman. Okay. Well, here's a question then, spinning off of that. Then how do you, you know, you were saying about how he holds himself to such a high standard and everything like that. But in the, I think it was the last, I think it was like the one with the Justice League anyway, it shows that um, Batman kills the Joker. So... Well, I mean, it's, it's like anything else in comic books, right? So, you know, my experience with Batman growing up was sort of the more traditional late 70s, early 80s Batman, where Batman never, you know, he, did, he didn't use guns. He never really killed anybody. I think the first time I remember seeing Batman actually causing irreparable physical harm is when, I forget, he was the Dark Knight or something. He ended up breaking a, a character's back. And the challenge with comic books, like anything else, is, you know, you start off with a particular storyline and then you, you, you generally end up retconning certain things to try to maintain interest. So that's always the challenge, right? I mean, it's the same thing with Superman. I mean, you're basically talking about a guy, okay, well, he can fly, he's super strong, he's invincible. Okay, we can only stretch this for so long, then how do you go about, you know, maintaining interest and coming up with new storylines? So then you come up with, uh, you know, the different, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the different uh, dimensions. Uh, you start wandering to that and certainly i think with justice league uh if i remember correctly you know that was a very different take on the dc super uh the dc superheroes than in previous iterations so it, it to a certain extent it's about interpretation you can maintain the general theme of superheroes as we remember them while also making small adjustments to go okay well now this batman is slightly different um yeah again uh, you know what i i remember watching the animated batman series and the animated batman series was something that i thought was particularly interesting because it was a kiss show but it, it did a really interesting job of exploring 
somewhat more adult concepts, but couched in a way that uh, the FCC censors wouldn't go, oh, this is an adult thing, bad, bad uh, cinematographer, or, you know, bad, bad writers. So, you know, it, it's, it's, going, it's always going to be what you remember those superheroes uh, based on the iteration that you read at the time. So, I mean, can Batman be someone that is more darker and that is willing to um, actually use uh, lethal force? Sure. Uh, you know, you can always have that interpretation, and that's why you have Comic Con and all these different events where people go, "No, this this Batman is the best Batman." No, this Batman is the best Batman, and, and it kind of you know keeps people it keeps people focused on the characters in a way that continues to grow that particular character, the medium, or just interest in general. Got it. Yeah. All right, man. So far, I am very much enjoying these answers. So we're doing pretty good. Um, so we're gonna shift a little bit, going into the you know the reason we have you. So a little bit more gun related. Um, so your favorite gun and your favorite caliber. They do not have to, you know, intersect. And it could be pistol, rifle, whatever. Grenade, tank. Mm, you know. My favorite <laughs> gun. I think it's a toss-up between a, a Mark II 50 cal and the Gal 30, only because uh, they're they're machine guns. Everybody loves machine guns. Uh, the 50 cal is quite iconic. It's very interesting to consider that the 50 cal was invented what almost a century ago, and despite its age, it it's a very functional and very effective platform. Uh, you, you've seen defense or uh, different contractors try to update the 50 cal in various methods, but it just it just works. It works. It consistently works. You you headspace. You get you headspace. You time it. You throw in some 50 cal, and it's an immensely useful weapon uh, for for light uh, anti anti material applications. You could you know we uh, made it work as a sniper rifle in Vietnam, uh, and it's just a lot of fun and has a very distinctive very distinctive sound to it you know just push the butterfly triggers and, and we've been able to make it work from as an original ground uh, cruiser weapon to an aerial platform to just about anything else in the sun and uh, much like the 1911 it's a design that has really defied any real opportunity to replace it like we've just never really been able to find anything that is more effective than a 50 cal as a general purpose medium to heavy machine gun uh and then who doesn't like the gal 30 i mean literally let's make the biggest gun possible and build an airframe around it so what are we going to do with this uh i don't know we're, but we're going to kill a lot of tanks with it so that that's you know kind of it, it the gal 30 was very purpose built in terms of uh uh, anti-tank, uh, anti-tank, uh, warfare. And it's also something that just has been able to defy any means of replacement. So I, I think a couple years ago when they were thinking about phasing out the A-10s and realizing, you know, there still is a purpose for, there, there still is a, a mission for a purpose-built ground attack cannon that basically goes through anything and everything and it, it just it, it also it's a, it's its own distinctive sound uh you know when you're when you're on the battlefield and you hear gal 30 go off you're like oh somebody's having a really 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 bad day like i i'm glad i'm not at the receiving end of that or the pilot's having a really good day right sure. exactly 
He's just living life to the fullest. Well, you know, as long as, long as he understands, don't hold the trigger down too long, or you know, the Earth realizes the, the A10 is too ugly and it just falls. Right. It's like, no, it's cool. <laughs> hey, that's a great way. That is the one time where you can say at my funeral in my eulogy, he died doing what he loved. This is true. This is true. Slowing uh, down so that his plane crashed. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he would be a, a, an example taught at the Air Force Academy. Okay, remember this guy. Don't do what he did. Yeah. Uh, favorite caliber. <laughs> he died smiling, but he still died. He definitely did. <laughs> uh, favorite caliber. Man, you're actually making me think about this one. I feel uh, like we need to play the Jeopardy music. Well, the caliber, I obviously should. I mean, what well, I will say is this. You, nine millimeter, I think, is the most chosen. So, Yeah, it's probably the most popular. Hmm. Well, let's, let's think about something a little bit different then. All right, while you're thinking, one, the 50 cal has, as the old saying goes, withstood the test of time, like the 1911 has. Uh, and um, two, the Gal 30... You put an anti-tank gun in a flying tank. Oh, this is true. Yeah, this is true. Actually, let's let's go let's go a little bit far back. Uh, what was the Mauser originally mm. chambered in? It was it was eight millimeter Mauser or seven millimeter Mauser. Yes. Both. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, however, Google sometimes knows. I, I would almost say the Mauser round would, would, is actually something I, I, that I would consider really interesting as a favorite round because you're you're really talking about at that point a you're talking about the the first development of a a working bolt action mechanism that uh, allowed you to actually be able to shoot what caliber eight so yeah so eight millimeter mauser i mean eight eight millimeter mauser is something that's been around what there, there really hasn't been something that's been developed that's really greatly improved upon it you know that you can still see that functioning in hunting rifles all the way to you know the old mauser rifles you're you know if you look at the bolt action designs at the time uh you know you look at the 1903 remington the 1903 remington was essentially a variation of the uh the, the mauser action so that that particular bolt action you know really look at as the first uh robust uh combat effective uh bolt action mechanism and and it's it's been able to continue on you know even in uh, sporting sporting purposes and it's a very effective round it does pretty much what you need it to do uh, you know for something that was designed definitely over 100 years ago it's it's similar to like the 50 cal where it's, it's just been able to stand the test of time it's amazing how guns that were made in that era seem to have are still popular today in some ways. Yep. Well, to be fair, it was probably a lot easier to actually manufacture stuff. I mean, if you happen to if you happen to blow up a gun, you weren't you didn't have to end up spending millions of dollars in lawsuit fees, or be or be scrolled on social media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. One gun blowing up doesn't ruin your entire company. It does not. Yeah, six years later, they were like, do you remember that Carl, you know, in Stuttgart where he blew his hands up? It's so sad. What happened? It's terrible. You're like, oh, no, what happened? Who's, who's Carl? I thought his name was Klaus. Right. All right, so you went into the Marine Corps right after college. 
Yes, sir. Uh, obviously, you said you spent a couple, you went overseas a couple times. So what was your favorite moment, story, duty station, whatever, from your time in the Marine Corps? Well, unfortunately, I, I was stationed at 29 Palms my entire career. Uh, I Oh, Lord. I, I But I volunteered. I actually volunteered to go to the division in 29 Palms. Uh, I think like anybody else that joins the Marine Corps officer side, we, we sort of go, I, I want to be a combat arms guy. So I think uh, the way that it works on the officer training side is you you have a list of 32 MOSs at the time, and you ranked it from first to 32nd. And depending on how you perform at officer training, that determined your uh, your your MOS choice. So I think I put you know tanks, infantry, you know a bunch of other combat stuff, communications, and then logistics was my fifth choice, being as I I just didn't know any better at the time. So when I when I was told that I was going to be logistics, I just figured well. Uh, this is my introduction to the big green weenie so you might as well give it to me with both barrels i now volunteer to go to the division in 29 palms wow you went for the biggest green weenie you could find i, I did i didn't even say well maybe i could go to hawaii <laughs> or anywhere else uh, but surprisingly enough 29 palms I, I actually really appreciated my time there uh it was definitely an experience i'm glad i went there when i was single uh, I showed up to 29 Palms in the dark and then woke up the next day and realized there was literally nothing around. But from a training perspective and a uh, distance from the flagpole and being able to actually focus on your job and not necessarily have to deal with some of the other administrative aspects, that was something I really enjoyed. And to be perfectly honest, it did make it easier when I when I went to Iraq. Literally, I landed in Kuwait and looked around and thought, wow, this literally looks like March Air Reserve Base that I got on a plane. 16 hours ago are you sure we're not back in california no <laughs> time warp yeah um so i you know and even the two deployments to iraq uh those were it's interesting how, you know that there, there are people i still talk to afterwards that say the happiest they were was when they were deployed because there's just it, not it, at 29 bulbs well, there, there's there's a certain <laughs> simplicity to being deployed, right? So you're not worrying about paying the bills. You're not worried about if your Marines are, you know, paying 30% loans on a Mustang, uh, getting tattoos, you know, going to the strip jo strip joint and coming back the next day going, I love her, she loves me, like you just met her yesterday. <laughs> uh, there, there's just a certain simplicity where you know all you have to do is wake up, do your job, go to sleep, and, and you know, even... You know, even when things were less than stellar, you know, there was there was a purity to it that there's a purity to it that it's really hard to explain. I, I think the closest I've been able to find that purity is skydiving. So when you're oh. skydiving, so it's really interesting. You know, everybody thinks about skydiving and, uh, you know, Mike Shadoff can totally talk to this because he's a way he's much more experienced in skydiving is you people think about it most you know well we're, i'm totally dating myself because most people think about it from point break right the guys are all like oh dude blah whatever like very sort of chill and the first time i went to go learn to, to skydive it was really interesting the way that they were able to flip that switch so you would talk to them and they would totally try to put you at ease dude bro whatever but then when it came time to just before you jump it was like they flipped a switch and it was all serious okay tell me what you're going to do all right, well, I'm going to exit the plane. Uh, I'm going to achieve a stable flight platform. 
Uh, I'm going to ensure that I maintain a stable pl uh, flight platform while constantly viewing my altimeter up until about an altitude of approximately eight to 10,000 feet. Okay, what are you going to do after that? And it was very process oriented, very serious, like, whoa, where did I, I thought skydiving was all about being chill. So, but when you're in the air and you're skydiving, in some ways, I, I occasionally find this when I shoot a USPSA stage. The only thing that you can really be aware of while you're skydiving is just what's going on around you, right? You, you, you can't really think like, oh, you know, I wonder what's for dinner. I wonder how bad the traffic's going to be on the 95. Uh, I wonder who. Oh, no, it. you're looking at the drop zone and air, which ways the wind come in and all of that. Yeah. But, but it's it's a very singular focus yes that, um, it's probably the closest thing I've found to you know being deployed where you really cannot take your attention away from the task at hand so uh, I, I I actually really enjoyed my deployments you know good bad and ugly though they were very different experiences from my first to second deployment um, but there's just you know there's just there's those stories that um, when, when were you in Dave? Uh, I'm dating myself now and that would be 85 to 94. So right before desert storm and then shortly afterwards. Yeah. So there, there are these things that happen when you're in the military service that it's just, it's really hard to convey the context to people that haven't served. You know, people think about the military as this, uh, this sort of large gargantuan thing where everybody is the same and everybody does things a certain way or they they see what they watch in the movies and they think oh this is kind of the way military service is and they're they're just the experience is very different it can be great it can be terrible but there are certain things that you experience where you just go i don't really know how you could ever explain to somebody yeah, we, we thought our, we, you know, you, what is it? I've, I've heard guys in Okinawa in the middle of a typhoon going, oh, well, what did you guys do in the typhoon? Uh, well, sir, we decided to take our mattresses out, put on our flak and Kevlars and yep. see if we could parachute with our, um, with our tarps from the third story. And you literally just look at them and go, I, I got nothing. I got nothing because... You, you don't even know what to say, but you know, they did it. You know, they were right. just like, Hey, if, if I, if I make a parachute, will I be able to survive on a mattress in the middle of a typhoon? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Legit. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. I was over there when uh, they, we had a couple of them come through. We had the, uh, typhoon parties, people putting on their helmets and flag jackets going outside. Yep. It's mm -hmm. legit. <laughs> You know, because I guess when you're when you're young and you're invincible, you're like, well, I guess we might as well see what happens. Where were you at in Okinawa, sir? Uh, Camp Schwab. I'm so sorry. Where were you at? I, I never made it to Okinawa. I was actually okay. Going to it, but but uh, when we were doing the UDP programs at the time, all the infantry battalions from 29 Palms were basically going to Camp Schwab. So I showed up uh, right after our, our units for, uh, returned from Camp Schwab, and so. Uh, it's one of those interesting things where people will say, yeah, Camp Schwab is literally in the middle of nowhere. And at the same time, I've heard that it, it has some of the most gorgeous scuba diving out there. If you oh, yeah. are interested. Even if you were just going to go out and um, do snorkeling. I mean, it was fantastic. Right. 
So. It's kind of well, it's kind of crazy because you think about it. You know, it's there's really only the military out there, and it's it's you know generally very undisturbed. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I extended a second year there. I enjoyed it a lot. So okay. it was fun. Saw a Habu mongoose fight uh, just north of there, and all kinds of good stuff. So uh, I I I regret not having been to Okinawa. I've I've known some Marines who just absolutely d despise being at Okinawa and I've known folks who wanted to spend the rest of their lives there. So my, my best friend, uh, one of my best friends in the Marine Corps, he and his family were stationed out there um, with his, as a Cobra pilot. And his wife at the time was, uh, she was born and raised Marine Corps. So her father was a retired uh, Colonel and, and she just thought, wow, family in Okinawa, she thought it was going, she was not really looking forward to it and their experience was very much the opposite uh she found that it was great for the kids uh, you could basically fly from okinawa to pretty much anywhere in the pacific uh very cheaply so yeah. it was kind of amazing that they actually spent more time visiting taiwan than i did you know they were just constantly traveling all over the place and it she you know they ended up realizing that it, it was a really great place to uh, have a family i i found that okinawa might the northern training area might be the darkest spot on earth do you remember silence of the lambs when they they showed the scene where she couldn't see anything and she's like that was me one night northern training area wow i could not see the guy in front of me and i was arm lengths away so whenever we had to step over something and we would break contact with this pack i was like oh i where, where, where'd he go? Where'd he go? It was that bad. Wow. It was nuts dark. I have never in my life experienced anything. I can go in a bathroom, shut all the lights off, and it's not as dark as that night was in that jungle. Wow. Yeah, so the, can nuts. the canopy is really that thick. It is that thick in that area. And the crazy thing was, you know, the, the slope was probably a good 30 or 40%. Okay. So, you know, we were precariously walking with you know our packs and doing it because it was a nighttime patrol and uh yeah that was that was crazy but you but you survived i i did survive i did not die so i'm good that is actually why he's as short as he is though <laughs> i'm gonna lean back all the time but it's okay all right so moving along now when when did you first shoot a gun that is actually a really interesting story so uh, i was born and raised in western kentucky in a little town called owensboro and the first time i actually shot a gun was at a game warden's house so i decided i wanted to learn how hmm. to shoot a gun uh, I, my family had no prior experience and you know being in in the midwest and the south i thought well, let me just call the police. So, so I called the Owensboro Police Department and said, uh, hey, my name is Demon. I'd really like to learn how to shoot a gun. Where do I go about doing this? And of course, you know, it's, it's a relatively small town. So people aren't going now, these days you do that and somebody's probably gonna, they're probably going to show up in your house. But they were kind enough to actually connect me with the local game board. So again, you know, it's, it's something that I, I really found welcoming about the Second Amendment community is I call up this game warden out of the blue and he doesn't even say, hey, let's go to the range and like, let me vet you or anything. He literally said, well, come by my house. And I'm like, 
So, so I, I drive to this guy's house and, uh, and he was just so welcoming. He was so friendly. You know, he literally brought out everything from his safe. So we started with everything from a 22 to a nine mil to a 357, you know, a shotgun, uh, a rifle. And, you know, in, in Kentucky, you know, you basically build up a berm in your backyard in the, in the country and you basically have a range. So we, we went out there and he literally was kind enough to kind of walk me through all the appropriate safety steps and literally let me shoot, you know, anything, almost everything he dragged out of his safe. And it was really cool because wow. he was so friendly and so open about it. And it turned out he was actually uh, serving in the National Guard as a sniper. So he had been deployed to uh, Yugoslavia uh, for the police action there. And so it was it was just it was definitely a, a really interesting first experience, uh, something that and I feel like we don't necessarily, sometimes we need to sp uh, spend more time showing that the Second Amendment is generally very friendly. I mean, very similar to USPSA, you know, show up to match your gun breaks or your mags break or something, and people literally start digging into their car going like, hey, I have all this stuff for you. You know, if you don't have ammo, like, hey, I've got ammo for you to shoot. And so that that sort of welcoming introduction into firearms uh, was something that was really special to me. Wow. How old were you when you did that? I think I think I was still in college or just before. Okay. Just after. Oh. But it was it was it was fairly fairly late on, so I, I did not grow up with, um, you know, an extensive firearms background. Uh, most of it was from military history. I, I'm a military history buff, so my mom mm. would, you know, my mom tells me when I was in kindergarten and I go into the library and the first book I pick up is a book about World War One, and she's like, yeah. And so that's that's always been something that's just been very fascinating to me is military history and particularly all the, the guns and tools and stuff. Okay, Leo. Now, I would like to put something out. I looked it up. As of 2019, there were less than 60,000 people in Owensboro, Kentucky. So back then, there were probably 12. So it's uh, easy it's... to know the game warden, you know, when there's only 13 <laughs> people in your town. This is true. This is true. I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't, I wasn't involved in that. So it was, it's very interesting in being in Western Kentucky and you know, not being exposed to guns at all, other than what I've read in the history books. And I, I just, I just didn't know. I literally was, well, I guess if I want to learn how to shoot guns, maybe I should ask the police. where did you go to college? I mean, that's the way to go though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, you know, they, they did exactly what they needed to do from a public service perspective, you know, after that little bit of hesitation of, uh, here, why don't you talk to the game warden? So, uh, so the question, Dave, was where I went to school. Yeah, where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to some school in Connecticut. So okay, so that okay. I, I apologize. You don't have to name it. That's no, fine. no, I, I I apologize. I'm all, I'm always a little bit more demure about it. Uh, I went to Yale University. Okay. So that what's I up, Leo? To, I went to Yale. Oh, okay. Smart guy. My brother goes to Yale online. So <laughs> that's online. true story. No, he harasses him all funny. the time. His his wife sent me a picture of him in front of the medical building, and I'm like, Photoshop. No, don't believe it. Nice. <laughs> what? So I mean, is he actually there right now? Or you'd be proud of that. 
No, he's here. So it's it's he it's to be a PA. He's doing it through the Air Force. So okay, part yeah. of it he goes up there to do his practicals. So right. yes, he goes to Yale. Whatever. So, but be proud. You can be proud. That's a good school, I hear. Uh, For the record, I taught him to be a paramedic. So, there we go. That's how we got into Yale. He's my brother. Yeah, that's how we got into Yale. Was Dave was like, "This is how you do it, dummy." (laughs) This Uh, is how you do it. uh, Yeah. No, I mean, so actually, it's very interesting that uh, Yale and the Marine Corps are actually a little bit more uh, linked than uh, than I expected. So when I when I applied to Yale, uh, the Ivy Leagues basically all give uh, applicants the opportunity to interview with a an alumni. Uh, it's 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 kind of a brand ambassador thing because the alumni usually can present uh, the the school in sort of the best light. And so the person I interviewed with for Yale, he was actually part of the church that my parents went to, so they went to a Presbyterian church. And it turned out he was actually in he was actually in the Marine Corps. So it's. You know, it's very interesting that back in the 50s, there were there was a non insignificant number of people who would join the Marine Corps, uh, go to Yale or go to the Ivy Leagues. And afterwards, they would serve in the military. So he was actually a combat engineer in the Marine Corps in the 50s. Uh, and it turned out that his his classmate was actually uh, Pete Wilson, the governor of California. So Ooh. that was really interesting because I, I, I worked the uh, alumni the alumni visits for one year. And so I'm talking with uh, the guy that interviewed me and we turned out to be very good friends. And he was like, Oh, by the way, this is Pete Wilson. I'm like, wow, you're famous. <laughs> uh, so it, it was actually really interesting. So I, I just, it, I had such a really good impression of my interviewer as someone uh, who had, who grew up in Maine, you know, sort of, uh, and had joined, went to Yale and then after Yale joined the Marine Corps and then somehow ended up in Owensboro, Kentucky of all places. So, it was it was it was really interesting. the The recruiting station, the officer recruiting station for Yale, surprisingly enough, was actually out of Manhattan. So it was just it was it was different, you know, because I went down there and then you know nine eleven happened and all of the stuff that came out of that. But uh, Yale actually had the Marine Corps actually had a fairly uh, regular presence at Yale. You know, the officer guys would come up every couple of months and just set up and. Yeah, and now they have uh, Navy ROTC down down there. So it, it's it's very it's very interesting when you look back historically uh, that the Ivy Leagues, you know, there was that. There, let's go back to Robert Heinlein and Starship Troopers. So you go back far enough into the '40s and '50s, and you look at the Ivy Leagues as, you know, yes, we are the sort of the ivory tower, but there is a sense of civic responsibility that's associated with that. So you know, back in the '40s and '50s, and maybe up to the '60s to a certain extent, there wasn't this stigma of Oh, you you went to an Ivy League school and now you're joining the military. It was sort of considered, you know, hey, this is the responsibility we have to basically give back to the country in some form or fashion. Well, that's interesting you say it because I I wrote down one of the notes was I was like, that's interesting to me because I would see Yale as being a very liberal school and maybe not quite so military friendly, but it sounds like it's exactly the opposite. Uh. Well, now, I mean, clearly you know, there's there's a little bit of a change in that, uh, but I certainly wasn't the only person from Yale to actually go to the Marine Corps out of the officer community. One of the guys in my officer class yeah, that was two years before me, he decided to go through the, uh, the enlisted route as a reservist before he joined as an officer. Uh, again, we're, we're, we're all fairly well-versed in sort of uh, 
uh, military history and sort of the history of the military in general. And so that was a concern on his part. If you look at the 70s and 80s, where there was a disconnect between the officer corps and the enlisted, uh, sort of the haves and the have nots. And, and he felt that he needed to experience the military as an enlisted before being put in a position of leadership. There, mm -hmm. there were actually a number of people. Uh, one of my best friends, my other best friend uh, who's in the military medical community now at the army, you know, he was from Cornell. And so it was, it was actually quite surprising to find that, uh, there are, there were actually, I mean, we're not talking significant numbers, but there were definitely people out of the Ivy league who you know, felt that military service was an acceptable, an acceptable path. That's awesome. That's real well, good. And that was, I mean, so much, uh, in world war two, most of the OSS, which then eventually became the CIA, was recruited yep. from the Ivy League when they were still under the Department of Defense. So, yep. I mean, it, it makes sense, but obviously, like you said, there's been a shift, but historically that has been the case. So right. it's pretty interesting that a lot of people don't, like I, I, until we had this conversation, I hadn't really thought about it until looking back and be like, oh, well, that is, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, my, my, se my senior class thesis was actually on a military manpower staffing. So there was actually a guy who, Oh, and I, I'm really sorry that I can't remember his name right now, but he was a former NSA director uh, and he actually taught a senior seminar and it was about uh, American national security policy. And that was really cool because you just, you know, you really got to hear it from somebody who had sort of seen not only from the military side, but also from a real politics side. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, David Petraeus, David Petraeus, you know, after he left the army, uh, yeah, actually was. He he actually taught a seminar at Yale too as a, as an adjunct professor. So there there is definitely you know it, it has its up and downs. I mean, my my favorite professor is a uh, she was a, a military history professor. Now she's with uh, John Hopkins Kennedy uh, or no. She's now at Johns Hopkins at their School of Advanced International Studies and like she was just she was so super amazing and I know I'm going to remember her name at some point. I mean, she spoke fluent Russian. Uh, her senior thesis was actually on Soviet and German military tank doctrine between the two world wars. And when I read that, I was like, this is so super cool. Um, you know, she actually uh, was able to, oh, Mary, Mary Habeck, Mary Habeck. Yeah. So she's, she's at, as last I checked, she's still in Johns Hopkins. And when the Cold War ended, she was actually able to get into the, the, the now former Soviet Union and was able to come back, you know, with just a pile of original documentation uh, just about the various military things at the time. And so, you know, th there is, there are definitely pockets of that and it just, it just comes and goes, but yeah, that was, oh, that was super cool. Yeah. I love that class. That's pretty wild. <clears throat> so what was it the military, the, just your interest in the military in history then that drove you to join the Marine Corps? Uh, I will be perfectly honest. Uh, the reason why I joined the Marine Corps is because after 22 years of school, uh, I did not want to go to investment banking or consulting like the vast majority of my classmates. And so they, you know, that was sort of the accepted path, not accepted, but it's kind of where people went. They would go work for a consulting firm or investment banking firm in New York for about four years and then go to grad school. Uh, I definitely did not want to go back to grad school uh, because I was tired of class and i didn't really know what else i wanted to do for work so i will be perfectly honest i was a i was the equivalent of a 22 year old lance corporal not knowing what he wanted to do with his life so i thought well i'll join the marine corps instead this will be great 
I'll get some life experience and then maybe I'll go back to grad school and then 9-11 happened. And I was like, well, I guess now I'm actually going to live something that will be written about in the history books. Hooray. There you go. So I take it you enjoyed your time, though. and It was more good than bad. Uh, I, I think anybody who kind of went through the beginning of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, you know, I was able to, I was there in the beginning, you know, so in Iraq where it sort of felt like going to the Super Bowl. I, I mean, I think, I, I, don't, I don't really think that, I think that's the most relevant context. You know, we sort of been training, 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 and then yeah. you went there and, and you sort of thought, okay, now we finally actually got to do what we did and, and things weren't particularly terrible. And, you know, we came back and, and everybody thought, you know, this is great. We sort of achieved the highest point in our lives. And then the Marine Corps said, hey, you're going back to Iraq in six months. And we went, what? And the, the second deployment was a little bit more challenging. Uh, the environment was certainly different. It was a more kinetic environment. Uh, you know, there were some challenges there. And, you know, my buddy who was a Cobra pilot, you know, he went on back to back to back tours until I think 2007. And so I was, I never really made the transition to, let's say if you, uh, if you talk to uh, John Browning with AMU, you know, John Browning was with 3-5 when they had a very difficult deployment in Sangin. And, you know, John's such a great guy, you know, he, he, he's been able to handle that, you know, in a very, you know, in a, a great manner, right? You know, he, he doesn't necessarily get that look of like, oh yeah, that was a really bad time. I mean, and I, you don't really need to ask if you, you understand, but I was, I was never really involved in that type of environment where, you know, everything was just rough. Um, the, even with the second deployment with, you know, the casualties that we took and, and the different things that we encountered on the Iraqi Syrian border, um, just, I guess, I don't know, just, uh, what it was that we say, you know, better lucky than good. Right. So yeah it doesn't hurt that's for sure but i agree with you on the super bowl thing because that's the one thing well i you know i'd been around the world training and doing a bunch of different things training with a bunch of different military and all of that um you know i i uh even when i was in i i was okay with going to combat because while you can train and test yourself and do whatever you want to do there's only one real test and that's it. So it never happened during my time, but you know, it is what it is. That's the, so I totally get the Super Bowl analogy because that's exactly what it is. That's the one and only true test. And that is the Super Bowl of the military. So, yeah. And then, well, at least until you, then you're like, wow, this was great. And then wait a minute, the Super Bowl goes for how many years? Right. <laughs> oh. The never ending Super Bowl. <laughs> like 4,000 quarters of football. Right. <laughs> it's like tag team because you got to tag the next one in. Pretty much. So to close down that chapter, when did you decide to get out? Uh, 2005. So it would have been after my second deployment. Uh, you know, at that time, I, I had the opportunity to do another uh, another fleet tour as a company commander in Okinawa. And just at, at that time, it I felt like it was it, it it was time to go. It was it was okay. time. Okay. So you got out, transitioned, and so how did you go from Kentucky to Connecticut to now you're in California? Yes. 
So how, how does that, what made you decide when you got out that you were going to stay in California? Uh, well, my, my sister at the time was in the San Francisco Bay Area. She was still going to, uh, she was living up there. And uh, I, I, I fully admit, uh, being 25, 26, you know, okay, now, I'm, now I'm not. Still not knowing what you were going to do. Yeah. I, I, I was not a lost, <laughs> la- I was not a lost Lance Corporal, but I was probably an equally lost Corporal slash Sergeant at that point. And I knew I, I knew I didn't want to go back to Kentucky. And my sister was in California, so I figured, well, I'll just, I'll stay in California. Okay. All right. How are you enjoying California? You've been there for a couple of days now. Just a few. California is a very, there's so many things that I love about the state of California. Um, You know, California, you literally can choose to see four seasons if you want to. Uh, everything is mm-hmm. generally within driving distance. So if you want to go see snow, if you want to go to the mountains, that's about two, three hours away. If you want to go see the ocean, that's about an hour away. If you want to see, you know, actual seasons, trees and so forth, everything's generally within driving distance. Uh, the the variety of foods and people and, and quite frankly, the weather is generally very pleasant. Uh, we normally start crying when it gets above 70 degrees and we also start crying when it gets below 50. And it's, it's kind of depressing to say that because having, having been in Northern Virginia before you, we know that that variation is significantly larger. Um, and at the same time, you can be very frustrated with the political climate. Uh, you can be very mm-hmm. frustrated with the, you know, the taxes and the cost of living, you know, these are all very real tangible things that, it's for, it, it can be very difficult to ignore after a while. Um, but from a, you know, from a USPSA perspective, California is actually amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Whether you're in the San Francisco Bay area or you're down in the LA area, you know, they're very strong, robust clubs down there. Uh, there, there is a very strong uh, USPSA presence, a uh, very mature presence. And so I was actually really surprised to see just how strong the competitive shooting community was in California. And not only how strong the competitive shooting community is, but just also how, how diverse it is. Uh, you know, we would have guys that, I mean, we had guys that shot the match that were Google employees. They were YouTube employees. We had doctors, we had lawyers. Um, believe it or not, uh, the, the former president of CrossFit, Dave Castro, like Dave Castro would come shoot our matches. You're like, wow, you're the president of CrossFit now. And so, uh, you know, you just get a really wide variety of folks that uh, come and enjoy the matches, come and enjoy each other's company. And then they're able to kind of take that message and and continue on with their involvement in in competitive sports after that. And the other interesting thing about California is, you know, we're kind of the whipping boy for, uh, you know, the red part of the country. And, you know, the reality is a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, yes, we, we have a lot of laws and something that was very interesting for me to observe is that the Western United States has always had a little bit more of a live and let live, you know, very independent minded. So it's actually really interesting that the reality is we have a lot of laws, but then the, the adherence or the enforcement of of those laws is very it is is not as stringent as say new york so i remember the first mm. time I was in area eight 
And I saw the guys from Long Island and New York, and we're sitting here talking about how the the environment is. And I basically told them, you know, yeah, we, you know, we still shoot all the divisions. We don't shoot to ten rounds. And they looked at me and thought, well, that's some horse. That's a horse dung right there. Like because you know, New York, if you have anything over ten rounds, it's do not pass go, go to jail, you know, forever. Whereas here, it's like, okay, well, if you're not, if you're not committing a heinous crime. You know, more often than not, it, it will be, you know, overlooked. Yeah, I mean, when we had Juanzik on and he talked about being at the airport in New York and a cop pointing uh, an automatic weapon at him, you know, because he had guns and magazines that weren't allowed in that state. I was like, holy cow, there's a little bit of pucker factor. Yeah, and it's, it's always very interesting for people coming to California for, for the first time and they ask, you know, what is the likelihood? And unlike the New York airports where the New York Port Authority is the law enforcement that actually look for that, you fly out of California and TSA goes, well, these are TSA doesn't enforce California, you know, California state laws. It's sort of the right. same thing I, I experienced when I flew out of Area 8 the last time I flew out of Reagan National. And I was, you know, a little bit like, OK, I'm in D.C. now. Like what what happened? Right. Uh, and, and I was, you know, and I was very surprised to find that. They, they were very much TSA as well. Uh, I mean, look, we, we've all been there where, you know, you get ready to fl fly out for a match and you think you've checked your bags mm -hmm. and then you realize you haven't. Uh, and so I, I had I, I had these Remington primers right before they went bankrupt. I thought, wow, I am totally set for primers for the next couple of years. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's a reason why they went bankrupt. These primers were so bad. I couldn't, I, I think I had like a, an 80% fire rate with a stock a stock weapon right just whatever it was and so i kept those as my as my dry fire ammo and of course i forgot and they were loose and um yeah but i but it was it was again it's, it's the experience was very uh amazing to me because it was you know the, the tsa supervisor comes up and he goes well do you have a mag you can put these in i'm like yes yes i have a mag hold on put, put the dummy rounds in the mag put it back in the carrying case and i'm like okay thanks have a nice day uh, but but the, the the experience coming into California is you know very different than what um, I think it's very different than what you might see in in the in the media. So it's, now they are though trying to pass more laws. I know, um, and we don't have to get into all of that. But it does it does it look like any of the new stuff they're trying to pass will negatively affect your ability to shoot matches? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, we 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 sort of go through this on an, on an every an, on an every year basis. So the interesting thing about California state law is that uh, you know, uh, it, laws can be proposed. You can actually have laws that are set aside, and then they'll say, "Okay, now we're changing the name of this law to something else, and now we're reproposing this." So it, on mm -hmm. a, on an annual basis, there's almost always something that gets brought up, and it, you know, there there is a little bit of a feeling like you're um, you're an abused domestic violence survivor because it's sort of okay. Well, this didn't pass. Thank goodness we still get to keep what we have. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, we had the mag ban that was passed. You know, we were very concerned about that from a uh, division perspective. And then the law was put on hold, and then it, it got taken to federal court. And so even though that law technically still exists, it stayed until. It's decided by the circuit court or decided by the Supreme Court. So there, there is obviously that concern. Uh, we're just 
again, it's one of those because California has a super uh, super majority Democratic Assembly and Senate. You know, there's only there, there's a lot of behind the scenes politics that has to take place so that you either mitigate the impact or you essentially make an offer that they can't refuse in terms of, yeah, this is really not a good idea and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So for better or for worse, you know, we're, we're, we're all quite interested in seeing what the results of the New York case will be at the Supreme Court, uh, in right. terms of whether they come out and say, hey, we're, you actually need to apply strict scrutiny or at a minimum, uh, there needs to be some level of scrutiny and not just common good, which I believe that's what the, uh, the standard is for most state Second Amendment laws at the moment. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>